Is that good? Can everybody hear me? Sound better? No? She'll get it. She'll get it going. Um, so, you guys may not have noticed this. Uh, Mike sure did. Um, my notes are sitting in the front seat there. Um, I had something um, planned out that I'd kind of been meditating on this week and last night and even this morning I had labored and wrote about three outlines of notes uh, bouncing back and forth between what I wanted to share and none of it just felt right. Um, I even posted on Instagram, um, Hebrews 7, this is where we're going and we may get there, but it's just not it. So I'm going to um, preach to you guys today, but I'm going to do it in a different way manner i've done this once before i'm just going to kind of preach from the overflow of my heart um we sang two songs today and both songs that we sang today had one thing in common they were both attributing our thoughts towards god that is who you are was a repetitive line on the Waymaker song that is who you are aw tozer once said that what you think about god is the most important thing about you what you think about god do you think that he's a harsh judge that's ready to strike you down at your first misstep? Do you think that he's a loving father that wants the best for you? Do you think that he's a great savior? Do you think that he's Lord? Or is he just a utility God that gets you out of hell for free kind of God? What do you think about God is the most important thing about you? And so as we go forward this morning, I want to just kind of share my heart on two levels. One, on who God is towards us, but on the second level, on the deeper level of that, is who God sees us as. Because we have a lot of ways that we define ourselves. You know, we use words, and sometimes they're not the most friendly words. We'll say failure. We'll say pathetic. We'll say sinner. We'll say addict. We'll say falling short, lazy. You know, the list goes on and on. You know what names and what words you attribute to yourself. Um, if you want to, as you start turning over there, we're going to start in Romans 8 and then end up in Hebrews 7. But what does God say about you? What does God say about you? And last night as I was laying down um, and as I was sitting here in worship, I was thinking about Mike's exhortation and about his testimony about going on for those 17 years and having God there and doing things for God, but have never, having never fully surrendered to God. And I think that in Christendom, in the church as a whole, we have that problem across the board. Um, that God's there and we can show people our technical salvation. We can show people um, that we are quote-unquote saved, but we don't have a living and active relationship with God. And so our view of God is distorted. And so we'll think of God as either someone that just accepts everybody and there's no, there's no requirement for Christianity and so it's just universal. Everybody that says anything, no matter what God they believe in, He's just going to welcome all into the kingdom. Or we think of God as somebody that has a lightning bolt that's ready to strike us down at our first mess up, our first misstep, the first time that we sin after we say a prayer and then we've got to run to the altar and repent and give our life back to Jesus because we just blew it. We've just, for lack of a better expression, screwed the pooch. <laughs> I'm not supposed to say that behind the pulpit, probably, but that's yeah. But that's that's a common that's a common phrase we use that out there on the street. So what makes it different? If we can use it out there, why can't we use it in here? 
That's our conversation should be the same either way. If we say it in here, we should say it out there. If we say it out there, we should be able to say it in here. We shouldn't have a separate conversation outdoors than we have in here. So if you'll pardon my expression, we think that every time we sin, that we're automatically going to hell and we've got to re-give our life to the Lord. We've got to repent. We've got to be done and start the whole process over. But that's not what the gospel says. See, the gospel is good news. It's good news. It's not harsh news. It's not bad news. It's not news that's good for some people and not for others. It's a good news that's extended to everybody. Now, what you do with that news defines how that news affects you personally, but it's good news across the board. It's the gospel. It's the love of God manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. That right there, the person of Jesus Christ, should reflect and determine our thoughts of God. If our thoughts of God are anything other than a loving, gracious, merciful Heavenly Father, then our view of God is distorted. For God to send His only begotten Son that anyone, whosoever believes in Him, should not perish but have everlasting life, that's good news. That's a loving God. To say that people that committed cosmic treason against Him, that violated His holy covenant, that He didn't just come down in the wrath and fury of all His vengeance and wipe us off the face of the earth, but He came at the same time in the garden that He did every single day, and He walked with Adam in the cool of the day, and then even though He knew that Adam had sinned, even though He knew that the serpent had deceived Eve, even though He knew that humanity was fallen, He still came at the same time that day. He still asked the same questions that day. And even when He was describing to them the ramifications of their sin and the repercussions of the curse, He still set forth the promise that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. He still set forth the promise of redemption, the promise of mercy even in the midst of judgment because that's our God. Judgment's all around and God says, but I will have mercy to whom I will have mercy. I will show love to whom I will show love. I will move on behalf of these people. Let's go to Romans 8. Let's go to Romans 8. We're going to be in, I don't know, um, um, hmm, let's start with verse 31. When I put Asher and Claire to bed, usually we'll break up and Faith will um, go pray over one of them and I'll pray over the other and then the next night we'll switch. Um, I do this thing, and Faith spends a lot longer actually praying than I do, but once I finish praying, I do the same thing for whichever kid I'm praying over. I lay my hand on their head, and as they're closing their eyes or rolling around saying bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, <laughs> I, uh, I just speak over them, and I say, you are anointed and appointed. You're blessed and highly favored. You're loved by a gracious God. You're ordained and destined and it has been decreed and declared that God is going to do great things for you. Yes. And sometimes we come in church and we come together and we expect to sing a few songs and we expect to get a, a sermon and to learn a few things from Scripture and then we expect to go out and continue our life until we come back to the next service. And we get in kind of this rut. And because we stay in this rut so long that it becomes a rot. And and occasionally we just need a good swift kick in the rear um, to get back into that position of, you know, realizing what God says about us. And that's the whole point of Romans. When Romans starts out, Romans chapter 8 starts out, it says, There is now therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. It says, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. See, according to the law... We were condemned. 
See, the law couldn't ever make us perfect. The law couldn't ever bring us to God. It was never, that was never its purpose. The law was given to commend and bring everyone under sin, to show everyone of the need of Christ. So the law, purpose of the law was never so that we could fulfill all these commandments and make it to God. It was to set a standard to show what was required to make it to God. And then to put forth the necessary requirement of Christ Jesus as Savior. And so the thing about Jesus is, the thing about God is, is knowing our weakness, knowing our failures, knowing our shortcomings, knowing our inability, knowing our failures and falling short, knowing that we could never fulfill the law, that we could never become perfect, that we could never become righteous, that we could never draw near to God through the law. He sent Christ to shift the paradigm. In the law, we were condemned in the flesh. God sent Christ to become sin and then fulfill the law, and so that sin is now condemned. No longer are we condemned in the law, but sin is now condemned through the works of Christ Jesus. And that's all because of the love of God, and that's why I want to read this to you. I know this doesn't make sense because it's kind of all over the place, but I promise it's going to come home maybe. Verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, If God is for us, who can be against us? You can meditate on that for a while. Make this your chapter verse when you're beating up on yourself. If God is for you, who can be against you? If God is for you and you're against yourself, then you're putting yourself at enmity with God because He's for you and you're against you. Come on now. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously, liberally give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now listen to these next verses very carefully. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Here's the answer to the question. No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And what have I told you is more than a conqueror? And I've said it several times. More than a conqueror is not the another person that's sitting back. We've heard that story about Evander Holyfield and that he went and he fought, but his wife got to spend the money, so she was more than a conqueror. That's not what it is at all. To be more than a conqueror is to be the price worth fighting for in the first place. When someone goes out and two armies go out to fight over a piece of land, they are both saying that that piece of land is worth more than their lives because they are willing to risk their lives for that piece of land. When soldiers go out in the name of America to wage war and to fight for our freedom and our liberty, they are saying that that freedom and that liberty is worth more than their lives because they are willing to risk their lives to maintain it. 
So when it says that we're more than a conqueror is what it's actually saying and what God is saying is that we are the prize. We are the joy that was set before Christ. We are the thing that Christ died for. He made us more than a conqueror, not because we had in ourselves something that was valuable, but because He, out of the overflow of His love, sought to redeem and set apart for Himself a people that He could have eternal relationship with. Therefore, He so loved us that we are more than a conqueror because we became the prize that he was willing to die for. That's the love of God. And yet we get our perspective of God so distorted. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, Satan included, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things that haven't happened yet, nor powers, nor any height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation which specifies everything but God because everything else was created. He's the only uncreated thing. So there's not a single thing that exists that can separate us from the love of Christ that's in God. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love. This is very simple. This is just my heart because I see people that claim Christianity that say that they've surrendered and a lot of the people have surrendered. And yet they just wear themselves out every time they fall, every time they misstep, every time a word slips from their mouth that they don't think that they should have said, every time they give a wrong opinion of someone else, when they laugh at a joke that they shouldn't have laughed at. Now all these things are bad, yes. But they don't separate you from the love of God. That's the love that God sealed in the death and resurrection of His Son. If you don't have Christ, you have none of it. What Mike was saying is if you don't have Christ, you don't have any of it. There is a way to heaven and it's an easy way. And sometimes we stumble over the simplicity that's in Christ Jesus, but it's not just an easy way, it's the only way. No other way but through Him. There's no other name under heaven by which man might be saved other than Christ Jesus. And it's very, very simple. We go over it consistently in evangelism training. We go over it consistently in Wednesday night and Sunday night services. We go over it consistently from this pulpit. It's very easy to be saved. And when I, somebody comes up and they say, I've known of Christ all my life. I've been in church all my life, but I've never surrendered. I want to give my life to the Lord. And when I say give my life to the Lord, it's not saying I want to make a prayer now and then go living, continue living the same way that I've been living. It's saying I want to stop this moment right here and put the old man, the life that I've been living, I want to put that to death and I want to become a new person in Jesus and go forth from this place being someone different than I've been the entirety of the rest of my life. Because when you give your life to Christ, you're saying it's not mine anymore. This life doesn't belong to me anymore. It's now Jesus. That's what making Christ your Lord is. It's saying, I no longer own myself. I no longer belong to myself. I belong to Jesus because I was bought and paid for with the blood that He put and shed on Calvary that He carried to the heavenly mercy seat to pay the atonement for my sin. I no longer belong to me. 
When I come up here to the altar and when I say I'm giving it to you, Jesus, that means it's all yours. That doesn't mean that I'm yours on Sunday and Wednesday or any other outreach event that I go to. That doesn't mean that I'm yours on the weekends, but during the week at my secular job, I'm mine again. That doesn't mean that I'm mine when I go to home and how I re interact with my relatives and my spouse and my children. That means that I'm yours 24-7 every day of the week, every day of the year, for every year of the rest of my life. I belong to you. That's what salvation is. It's not a one-time prayer. That starts it. That's the easiest moment of your life. Every day after that could be the hardest day of your life, but you have somebody in your corner because it's no longer your life. You don't make your decisions anymore. God makes them. If someone's Lord of your life, they make your decisions for you. Hebrews 7, verse 18. Now you have two things going on here. You have the law that was given through Moses and that was given as a schoolmaster, as a teacher to bring everyone to Christ. That was given as a standard to conclude everyone under sin. That was given to show that there was no way to God but through Christ Jesus. That's what the purpose of the law. It's not so that we could hold it over our heads and beat ourselves down and beat ourselves to death with it, showing that we're not good enough. It was given as an encouragement saying, look at how hard it is. Look at how hard it is. Look at how impossible it is. Salvation is impossible apart from God. Redemption is impossible apart from Jesus. We cannot fulfill it. We cannot be perfect. We cannot draw near to God without Christ Jesus. We cannot. We will not. No one ever has and no one ever will. Verse 18, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. The weakness of the law, we already established that, was our flesh, our sin, our failures, our inability to keep the law. And the uselessness of the law, we established that too. It's that the law given in the context of our flesh, is useless in drawing us near to God. It's useless in making us perfect. Paul says if somebody could be righteous through the law, then Christ died in vain. It's impossible for us. And I'm hammering the same point home again and again and again because sometimes I think we take it for granted that we know what salvation is and really we have no idea. We think we know why Jesus came and really we have no idea. For the law made nothing perfect. So the law's on this side. Schoolmaster, showing us that we need Christ. Condemning flesh and bringing everyone under the condemnation of sin. And then on the other hand, you have the better hope. Praise God for a better hope. You have a better hope. And His name is Jesus. And this hope we have in earthen vessels. Christ Jesus is our hope of glory. We have a better hope introduced through which we draw near to God. So Christ not only came so that we could be identified with Him, He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Christ Jesus came so that He could take our sin, pay the punishment for it, and that we could be justified. Remember the verse from Romans? It is God that justifies. Justified doesn't just mean that you're forgiven or that you're pardoned. 
It doesn't just mean that, okay, yeah, you're guilty, but we're going to forgive you. No, justified means that they see you as not guilty, as never having sinned, as never having done anything wrong. You have the righteousness of Christ and God. That's what justification is. That's what justified is. Just as if you never had done it in the first place. That's one of the things that Christ did. But the better thing, the thing that goes even deeper than that, is that He establishes an avenue by which we might draw near to God. He sets the road. He sets the avenue. He opens the doors of the throne room and says, Come to the throne of grace and come boldly that you might obtain mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made with such without an oath. But this one made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor or guarantee of a better covenant. In the secular world, in the materialistic world, when we buy something, if it has a lifetime guarantee, you can almost guarantee that it's a piece of junk. Because a good product doesn't have to have a guarantee because it's a great product. Jesus isn't that way. It's a lifetime guarantee that He will always, from henceforth and forevermore, be the mediator of the better covenant. That He will always be the avenue and the access into eternity. That He will always have the doors of the throne room open to those who are in Him. He's the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues with it forever. Now here's the verse. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Always lives to make intercession. He's able to save to the uttermost. So on the one hand, you have the law condemning everyone bringing everyone under the condemnation of sin, showing that we can't do it, that we can't make it, that we can't be perfect, that we can't come to God, that we can't be righteous. And then on the other hand, you have Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant, an everlasting covenant that shows that now in Him we can come to God. Now in Him we can be saved. Now in Him we can be righteous. And see, when Moses had the law, one of my favorite passages of Scripture is Exodus 33. It's when Moses goes to the top of the mountain and he says, Lord, show me your glory. And God tells him, he says, hide in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by you. But don't look at my face because this moment you look at my face, you'll perish. And so Moses, who represents the pinnacle of all that the law could achieve because he was the most humble man that ever lived. He received the law. He talked with God face to face, quote unquote, as a friend. No one else has ever achieved that. Moses was sent forth as the prophet who was a type for the coming of Christ. At the top, the pinnacle of the law, Moses only got to see God's back. But Matthew 5, chapter, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, when Christ is giving His Beatitudes, He says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
He establishes something better in his new covenant because that verse, if you break down the Greek, and I'm nowhere near the Greek scholar that faith is, but if you break down the Greek, it doesn't just say they shall see God one time. That word, the phrasing there, says they shall be seeing God continually over and over and over again. Because when Christ is looking at Philip and Philip says, show us the Father and it's enough, he says, Philip, have you been with me this long and have not known me? If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. We have Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the highest of high, the holy of holies. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of gods. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He says, I am the I am. I am God. That's, that's the words of Jesus. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. He is God in the flesh. And because of Him, it's not that we have to look upon God's back. It's not that we have to climb a mountain through fire and wind and smoke and torment. And that if we get too close to the mountain, a beast will be stoned or speared. And the people are scared to death. It's none of that. It's that God, from the top of His mountain, mountain looked upon a people that could never make it to the top and decided to descend so that we could have relationship with Him. Every belief system in the world, whether it's a religion, whether it's a worldview, whether it's science or knowledge, uh, whatever it is, science and knowledge are the same thing. Forgive me for that. My mind went blank. But whatever belief system or worldview it is, all has this same ethic to it, the same premise. You have at the top, the peak, the summit of the mountain, you have the first truth or God or whatever they want to call their goal. And they're working and climbing this mountain from all different ways, using all different methods, using all different efforts, trying to get to the top of this mountain, trying to get to their God or their truth or their sum total of knowledge, whatever they're trying to reach. And that's what they're doing. They're trying to climb. The thing that sets Christianity apart from that is that we look at the mountain and know it's impossible, but then we turn and we see the God who was on the mountain that everyone's trying to reach and decided that He didn't want them to work to get to Him. He wanted to work to get to us. See, before you ever made a step towards God, He made 10,000 towards you. Before you ever make a move to give your life to the Lord, He made a million moves to ascertain your life. Before you ever had the ability to consider whether or not you might want to surrender and become a Christian, God shed His blood for you. It's all about God in this. There's only one hero of this story. There's only one hero to Christianity. And it's not me. It's not any other minister out there. It's not you. It's Jesus. He's the only hero. To God goes all the glory. Because without God, we have no salvation. Without God, we have no ability for salvation. Without God, we have no hope. There's no promise. There's no future without God. There's no promise. There's no future without Jesus. It has to be Him. And that's why I love it. My favorite thing is not just being on the street and seeing someone that's never heard of Jesus come to the Lord. I love that. But that's not my favorite thing. My favorite thing is seeing somebody finally get it. Somebody that's been in church for years and have said a prayer and they're basing their whole life on a prayer. They're basing their whole life on a moment in time that happened 20 years ago and that they haven't done anything for God in the last 20 years. 
And I'm not talking about works because we're not called to works. We're called to minister to the Lord. The works are a natural overflow of our ministering to the Lord. See, I'm confident that you could win a thousand people to the Lord every hour on the hour for the rest of your life and still be displeasing to God. The reason is is because that's outer court ministry. That's ministry to people. That's ministry in the public. What God wants is you to go into the Holy of Holies, to go into the closet, to go into the secret place, to go where He's at. The Father which seeth in secret, that's what He wants. He wants you to come to Him in your private time and have a relationship with Him. It's not about what you do out there where everybody sees you. It's not about what you do on Sunday mornings when everybody's staring at you. It's about what you do when no one's looking. It's about what you do when no one hears. When it's just you and God. Is there a relationship there? Or have you forgotten God completely until it's time to get ready for church again? That's the problem. And we have people all over the world that think that church is enough. There's a funny statement that Keith Green used to say. He used to say that being in church doesn't make you a Christian even any more than standing at McDonald's makes you a hamburger. <laughs> you can come to church and it's necessary to assemble together with the brethren and the sisters. Brethren is just an all-inclusive term. Don't get feminist power on me. Don't beat me up, Jessica. Yes. The point of Christianity is relationship with God. That's why He redeemed us. That's why He set apart a people for Himself. That's why He paved the way. That's why He threw the doors to the throne room open wide. That's why He's waiting in secret for you to go in secret. It's all about relationship. So my favorite thing is when I see somebody who said Christianity was their religion or their belief system their whole lives, when they finally come to that place and they're like, I've never surrendered my life to the Lord. And they just throw the chips down. And they say, okay, God, I'm yours. I'm not mine anymore. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Christ liveth in me. That the life I now live, I live in the flesh. For Him that loved me and gave Himself for me. That's what it's about. Surrendering all. Giving it all up. Giving it all away. Not building up treasures for yourself here on earth where moth and rust and all this stuff can eat and destroy and it can be taken away with. People in this community know loss better than anyone. Destruction. You guys, a lot of you have seen the ramifications of a hurricane coming through or multiple hurricanes coming through. You know what it is to lose everything that you have in an instant. That's not a lasting inheritance. That's not a lasting possession. The only thing that lasts is what we've given to God, what we've surrendered to God. And that's why I love the end of that passage we read in Hebrews, that Jesus, who is able to save to the uttermost those that draw near to God through Him, He's able to save to the uttermost, to the guttermost. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what your life has been. It doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done. If you have, are alive, if you draw breath, then you have the ability to surrender your life to Jesus. To surrender your life to Jesus. That's why I put no stock in the sinner's prayer. That's why I put no stock in a one-time conversation. I put stock in a conversion and a life changed. I can't tell you whether or not you're saved. I can tell you whether or not you're saved depending on what your life has been. 
I can tell you the fruits of salvation. I can tell you the things that a saved person should do, what a saved person should look like, the things that a saved person should say. I can tell you all these outward signs in the flesh, but the only person that can tell you whether or not you're saved is you and God. Because I can't tell you what you believe in your heart. I can't tell you what resonates in your mind. I can't tell you if you've surrendered your life to the Lord. Because I don't see you when you're alone. I don't see you when you are in the pits of despair. I don't see you when something happens and breaks your heart. And I don't see if you're angry at God and you want to curse God. I don't see you if you've forgotten God. All I see is when you come to church or I see you out and about where everybody is and you can put on a happy face. I don't know who you really are on the inside behind all the walls that you put up for everybody to see. Only you know the real you. And that's why I cry from this pulpit all the time. Be authentic. Aim for authenticity. Be a real Christian. I tell you guys over and over again, if you're hurting, hurt, so that maybe you can get help. If you are living your life and you are surrendered to Christ, then yes, we celebrate together. But if you're not, stop lying to yourself, to others. Who cares if you surrender today or if you actually surrendered 20 years ago? Who cares how you start or when you start? I'm concerned about how you finish. I'm concerned about where you're at spiritually the moment you draw your last breath. That's what I'm concerned about. I'm not concerned about if you said a sinner's prayer when you were seven and it stuck or if you've just been playing the Christian role for your life. I'm concerned about the moment you draw your last breath if you're actually a Christian or not. That's what I'm concerned about. Because I think that's what matters. Romans 8, where we started at, says nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And that love of God is towards us. It overflows through Christ to us. And we have the ability to receive that love. We have the ability to drink that love in and have that relationship with God. And so this isn't where I'd planned to go or what I had planned to speak or teach on at all. But I just can't keep letting us condemn ourselves and tear ourselves down. No, if you're in Christ, you're blessed, you're highly favored. You're anointed by the Spirit of God. You've been appointed to do a work in the kingdom of God. You have been ordained and you have been destined to take part in His holy mission to reach the lost and to build up the saints and to establish His everlasting kingdom. It has been decreed and declared from all of eternity that you would have an everlasting relationship and habitation in the kingdom of God forever. Because you are a blessed people. And if you are not in that covenant, it's not too late to step into that covenant. See, I don't want to call you blessed if you're not in Christ Jesus. Because if you're not in Jesus, you have none of it. I don't want to say something about you that's not true. But if you are in Christ and you have surrendered, then stop condemning yourself. Because when you condemn yourself, you're opposing yourself, and that's the source of all confusion. If you're condemning yourself and you're in Christ Jesus, you're putting yourself at odds and enmity with God. And you're saying, God, you're wrong. 
If God calls you blessed in Christ Jesus and you say that your life is cursed, then you're saying God's a liar. If God says that you're healed and you say that you're not, then you're saying God's a liar. If you say that you're desperate and that you're broke and that you can't pay your bills and God says, I'm your provider, then you're saying God's a liar. And the Bible says very, very clearly, God is not a man that He should lie. And it says every single promise that God puts forth shall not fall to the ground, but shall surely come to pass. So here's your options. I'd have Faith put on some fancy music, but she's not here right now. She had to step out to deal with my son who wanted chocolate milk. <laughs> Two options. First option is the same one I put forth every time I call people for prayer. If you know you aren't, you know. I can beat you upside the head and up and down the street with the Bible and it do no good. You know if you've surrendered your life to Jesus or not. You know. Or you know if you've been faking it. Let's be real. You know. You know if you're really giving it all to Jesus or if you're keeping a quarter of it, half of it to yourself. You know. Just give it up. Because there's no winning outside of Jesus. There's no hope. There's no future. There's no promise. There's no blessing. There's no favor outside of Jesus. It doesn't matter. Mike said this morning when he was given his exhortation that he's never once in his entire time in church ever once judged somebody that came up for prayer. And I can tell you I've been in ministry for 10 years and I've never once judged somebody that came up for prayer. I've bowed my head and I've prayed for them and I've begged God to answer whatever request they had. You know if you've actually given your life to the Lord, if you've actually surrendered or if you haven't. So the first request is this. If you haven't given your life to the Lord, so let's start today. Let's surrender. Let's be honest. And the second one is like it. If you have given your life to the Lord, if you have surrendered, but you can't stop condemning yourself, you can't stop saying things, awful things about yourself, I want you to come up. I don't want to pray over you. I don't want to speak life into you. Because what does Proverbs 18 say? It says, Life and death is in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. You know what the Bible says about God? It says He is the one that calls things that are not as though they already were. Okay, you're depressed. I say that you're joyous. Okay, you're hurting. I say you're healed. You're sad. I say you're overwhelmed with joy. You're broken. I say that you're mended. We're going to do this in two parts. First part, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, I want you to come up and stand on this side. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus, but you can't stop condemning yourself, I want you to come up and stand on this side. And I want to pray over you. If you can't stop condemning yourself and you have surrendered, I want you on this side. If you've said a prayer but you know good and well that you've never fully surrendered your life and that you are not 100% certain that you're a Christian, I want you on this side. Okay? Now everybody else, I want you praying or if you need to go, you're welcome to leave.